We could turn to many places in the Word of God, but I'd like you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. Some might think this is an unusual place to start a message about fathers, but I hope that I can show you the seriousness of our duties by this passage. Second Timothy chapter 3, I want to tell you again, and many of you read this last night in preparation, there are 22 verses that form one lesson. From verse 1 of chapter 3 to verse 5 of chapter 4 is one 22-verse lesson. And if there is one passage that I must communicate before the Lord takes me out of this world, to all of you, it's to understand that we are living in the fulfillment of this prophecy. These 22 verses are one lesson. And you know some of the verses within the lesson, but I want you to know the lesson because this is the grave danger that we face as individuals, as families, and as a church. Right. Let me read the first seven verses to you. Second Timothy 3, beginning at verse 1. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, Unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I could continue reading. This is an indictment of the contemporary worship, casual worship, seeker-sensitive, mega-church, let's-please-everyone religious movement in America. This is a description of a brand of effeminate and compromising Christianity that God hates, that the, that the Apostle Paul warned Timothy about, and that Timothy was to preach against. If you come down to chapter 4, you'll see how it ties together, and I do want to read a couple more verses there for you to realize we have one lesson. In these 22 verses. I'll take up at verse 3 of chapter 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Bible preaching is almost extinct today. It's entertainment. It's fables. It's a light and song show. It's dramatic interpretive dance. It's programs. It's testimonies by athletes and actors. The pulpit in most churches is abused for what God ever intended it for. 
And that was what verse 2 tells us of chapter 4. Preach the word. That's the cure for the perilous times of the last days. Preach the word. And the word has just been defined for us in chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, where God has inspired all scripture and given it to the man of God to make him perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Right. A man of God with the word of God is all that the church of God needs. Amen. But today they've added all their embellishments and programs, innovations and modifications to the worship of God when the Bible tells us preach the word. Now, why am I at this passage? Because this passage tells us that in the last days perilous times are coming. There is grave danger for our souls, our families and our church. Now, the first and the great antidote is for the man of God to preach the word of God. But there's another antidote that isn't mentioned here, because it's mentioned everywhere else in the Bible. And that's for fathers to bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, so that those first five verses don't apply to our families. The time will come when men will be lovers of their own selves. Covetous, boasters, proud, And the apostle goes down through a string of symptoms that describe a very dangerous generation. We err. We make a grave mistake when we think it would be dangerous for this nation to have a famine. For this nation to have another world war. For this nation to have economic disaster. That would not be as grave as this right here. Because under hardship, greater Christians have generally been formed in the past. The grave danger is a compromising brand of Christianity. And we must stand against it in the pulpit. But today's lesson is, in our homes by Dad. Dad needs to stand against the perilous times. There is a threat upon your family. There is a threat upon your soul. There is a threat upon your household. There is a threat upon your church. Are you going to stand... And defend against it by teaching your children the fear of the Lord. There is no fear in these characters here. They have a form of godliness, but they have no authority in it. Look at them. They're boasters. They're proud. They're unholy. They're unthankful. They're disobedient to parents. They're heady. They're high-minded. And all the other symptoms that are true of our generation. And where did it come from? It came from churches that thought a basketball program would help the church. A church doesn't need a basketball program. It doesn't need more activities for the youth. It needs more preaching of the word from the pulpit for the youth, the basketball players, and everyone else included. But fathers are going to have to step up and do their jobs. Fathers can manage their marriage, their homes, their children, and grandchildren to God's glory to be saved from these perilous times. If fathers don't apply themselves diligently, these perilous times will swallow your family. If you relax and try to take it easy by going and doing your profession every day and coming home and sleeping and eating, your family will be swallowed by the perilous times. There's more than that to life. And that is to be the head of your home. There's nothing more glorious than a godly, strong, committed father and his wife and children, and then their children. It's a beautiful thing in the Word of God. God himself 
is willing to present himself to us as a father. Because he knows it's a great picture. Where there's a man in charge at home, leading his wife and his children to fear the Lord. And to make war against these enemies right here. These dangers right here in this passage. Turn to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. While you're turning to Psalm 127, why am I preaching this here in a mixed assembly? When I usually preach messages like this just to the men, I have my reasons. First of all, it's January 2nd. That's one reason. Second of all, I'm going to use the solemnity of our morning assembly, hopefully to get your attention a little better than one of our men's meetings. Third, I want the wives and the children to know what their pastor teaches. And I want the wives to be convicted today to want to get in behind their husbands and help them be these kind of men. Amen. To cooperate, to assist, to pray for them, and to always, co- to always be ready and willing to do what is necessary by way of assignment to make this happen. I want children to hear what a father needs to be doing and for those children to ready themselves to obey and submit to their father when he takes some new steps and some new positions in their household. You say, well, I'm not a father anymore. I'm a grandfather. Thank you for reminding me to address you as well. That means you have a greater responsibility than anyone else in here. Just because you're a grandfather and you're an empty nester and all your children are gone, that just means... You probably have children that have married, and you have a bigger family to take care of than you did when you had a nest full of children. Don't try to escape that way. Didn't you read Psalm 78 with me? Did it include more than just your direct descendants? Did it include their children and the generation to come? There are great-grandfathers in here. You have large responsibility. You can't shy away from it. All you young father, you young men that have been married and you don't have children yet, you can set your heart and mind now right. before you even get started. And all of us envy your shoes because we wish we could put our feet in them and start all over again with our children. But you that do not have any children yet, you can set your heart and mind. That is the kind of father I want to be. I'm at, we're at Psalm 127. I want to read verse 4. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man. Every man wants to be a mighty man. And if you don't want to be a mighty man, you need steroids. Because a man should want to be a mighty man. Every man should want to be a mighty man. I want you to be a mighty man. The Lord wants you to be a mighty man. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man. Now if you give me a mighty man, and Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, was a mighty man. Do you know how much taller he was than the rest of the nation? From his shoulders up, he was taller than anyone else in Israel. He was probably near eight feet tall as king of Israel. He was a mighty man. But do you know why he was slain in battle? Because he had no arrows. You say, how do you know all that? Because you read the Bible. Right. What did David do as soon as Saul was killed? He taught Israel the use of the bow and the arrow so that they could defend themselves. My point being, a mighty man without any arrows is pretty defenseless. And Saul went down that day in battle. 
but a mighty man with arrows. Now, he's not only a mighty man, he's got a weapon to do something with. That is a great man. Amen. And that is what the passage is teaching us. Psalm 127.4, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man. This is a simile. That's why you have the word as. There's a comparison being drawn here. You, you give me a mighty man that has a good weapon, and I'll show you a man that can accomplish a great deal. So are children of the youth. A man with children is like a mighty man with arrows. A, a mighty man can, can draw an arrow back on a bow designed for the purpose of flinging that arrow into space and do great things. And a man with children of the youth can do great things. While they're in their youth, they need to be trained and trained well. They can be flung out into the world and do great things for the Lord. Do you like the verse? Mighty men? Are there mighty men here? Children of the youth. Every day that we get older, older fathers, we wish we could go back and do things better, do things differently, and be mighty. We don't feel very mighty sometimes. Sometimes I feel like an old lady. Sometimes I feel like a little girl. When it comes to the mighty man, I couldn't, should have been every day of my life as a father. But we can't go back. We can just say, Lord, forgive me. Right. And help me now to be this mighty man. Amen. Much more could be said. This subject, I could preach on this subject for many, many weeks. Those of, those of you who have heard it before, some parts of it before, know that it could take many weeks. There will be a notebook with 70 pages in it after this service that will collect 11 different outlines that I've given you men over the past several years for you to take home and refresh yourself and remind yourself of what the Word of God does teach. Today I just want to get your attention. It's January 2nd. 2005 is before us. God made years. The calendar doesn't make years. God made years. God had feast days every year in which you were to remember what He had done for you that year. It is time to think about our lives as fathers. There's goals every father needs to have before him as to what he's going to accomplish with his children. And they're numerous. And they're listed. But in other places, and I'm not going to go over them right now. If you get convicted by this message and want to be this kind of a father, then it's your job to take the materials that I give you today and go home and put them into practice. I can't teach everything in one modestly timed sermon. A good father's a leader. Let's look in our Bibles at Genesis chapter 18. I want to give you a few points about what is a good father. Genesis chapter 18. We want to be mighty men. And we want to send our sons out into the world like a mighty man would send arrows out, accomplishing great things. Genesis chapter 18, you know the verse well, but I want you to know it even better. I never want you to forget it, and I want you to focus on two words that are in it. A good father is a leader. He shows by example what it means to be a God-fearing man. Genesis 18, verse 19. Here is what God said about Abraham. For I know him. Oh, I know him. 
God knew what kind of a man Abraham was, and God knew what kind of a father Abraham was. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. That's a lot in that verse. Do you want God's promises fulfilled in your life? Do you want God's promises fulfilled in your life? What does the verse say? Then you need to be the right kind of a father. Right. Because it says that God will bring to pass the things promised to Abraham because of his diligence as a father. That's not what I want out of the verse, though. I want you to see that he commands his household. Right. Joshua didn't sit down with his family and say, Family, where would you like to go to church this morning? And one dumb son raises his hand and says, well, I want to go where they have a basketball program. Another dumb son raises his hand and says, I want to go where they have a softball program. Joshua just told, on behalf of his family, these words. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Joshua twenty four fifteen. Now that's a great man. Right. That's a mighty man. He made the decision for his family, and he's going to lead that family. As for me and my house, notice the order. My house has told me that we're going to serve the Lord. That's how some families operate. My wife wants me to go to this church. Joshua didn't operate that way. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The first thing a godly father is, he's a leader. And he leads by example, and he's out front. Look at the two words I want from Genesis 18, 19. God said, I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. After him. After him. Now God is speaking. So is the hymn God, or is the hymn Abraham? The hymn's Abraham. God is saying of Abraham, he's a great father. He's going to command his household to keep the way of the Lord after him because Abraham's going to be out there keeping the way of the Lord first. So dads, the first way that you're a, great, you're a mighty man in the house and a mighty man as a father is you obey the Lord first. Right. It is a shame, and I've already said this once, that in many homes the woman is the more spiritual leader of the family. And it's because the father has abdicated his position. He's AWOL. I said that once. I've said it again. And it's a shame. It's not God's order. The Bible tells us that if a woman will learn anything, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, let her ask her husband at home. Whoa. You know, most men couldn't answer their wives' questions. And it's not because God's word's wrong. It's because they're wrong. Amen. Men are supposed to know the Word of God. Right. You know, in most homes today, the wife doesn't have enough to keep herself busy. Most Christian homes. And so she sits and watches some tele-evangelist, and she gets her kooky ideas of what the Bible teaches, and she leads the family spiritually. When it ought to be the man. He ought to be the leader. He's the example for the rest of the family. A good father does what is right confidently and firmly and expects his children to follow his holy example. And they will. God gave them to you with a blank slate and they'll follow you if you'll be a consistent example out in front of them. Leadership has nothing to do with arrogance, 
barking, domineering, name-calling, or yelling. If you're in charge, you never have to yell. A man that yells shows that he's out of control and that his family's out of control. Real men, real leaders, never have to yell because their word, by itself, spoken in normal tones, is sufficient to get the job done with all those under them. That is not leadership. Leadership is being, being an example for your children as Abraham was for his. Look at Proverbs 17. Proverbs chapter 17. The first thing a mighty father is, is he's a great example and he leads by his example in the home. Fathers are to command their children, but they better be out front doing it while they're commanding. The children better have already seen it lived out and not the father telling them what they ought to do while he doesn't do it himself. Children see through that in a hurry and it discounts our whole religion and your faith. They'll know that you're a hypocrite and a liar. We have to be out in front of them. Look at Proverbs 17 and verse 6. It tells us this. Here's Solomon's observation of family life. Children's children are the crown of old men. That means when they're obedient. Not all grandchildren crown all men. That's when they're obedient and they fear God. That's implied in the words. But I want the second half of the verse. And the glory of children are their fathers. A mighty man that lives a consistent, godly life and does his duties, will be looked up to by his children as a mighty man. Solomon said so. The glory of children are their fathers. Do your children glory in you, or are they ashamed of you? Do your children like to have you as their father when they're talking to other children, or are you a stench? Oh, brethren... This is an observation of real fathers. They're the glory of their children because they're great leaders and they're consistent in the examples that they set for their families. We must go on. The first thing every father has to be is an example out front commanding his household as its leader. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Not every, every father's different. God made every snowflake different. Every father's a little different in temperament. That doesn't mean he has to be talking a lot, but he needs to be out front. He needs to be living it, and he needs to be telling his family, even if it's in his quiet way, this is what we're going to do. Right. And every father is able to do that. God wouldn't have made you a man and given you the power to have children and sent you a wife to have them for you unless you could do that. If you have failed, you haven't submitted totally to the Word of God and put it into practice. You can confess that sin and correct it today. Number two, a godly father, a good father, a great father is spiritual. Number two, he's spiritual. That means he creates a home that is heaven-oriented. A home that is God-oriented. A home that is faith-based. In its approach to life. All decisions are based on what does the word of God say. Every good thing that happens to the family results in thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. Everything is faith based. Not world based. Not world talking. Not world thinking. But faith based. What is faith? The belief that God is 
and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And that needs to be taught in our homes by everything we do, being faith-based. He makes the Lord the center of this family, the end for their existence, the judge of all they do, the source of every need, the object of all their praise, and the defense in all times of trouble, always turning to the Lord. That man is going to have a great family because he's leading that family to be spiritually minded because he is spiritually minded. He knows that the knowledge of God is the greatest thing you can teach your children. Nothing else really matters. There are other things that are good. There are other things that are helpful. But the knowledge of God is most important. And that's what we need to teach first. That's what we need to emphasize the most. To teach the fear of the Lord to our children. I love Psalm 3411. It says, Come here, my children, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. It's something that can be taught. Isn't that encouraging? Amen. And it's something we ought to do. We have a new year. Ask God to forgive you for 04. If 03 needs to be included, ask Him to forgive you for both. If the last decade needs to be forgiven, confess that. Right. You won't be doing anything I haven't done. You, have, you won't be doing anything no one else needs to do. Right. Because we all need to press for the mark of the prize of God's high calling Amen. of being true Christian fathers. A father is spiritual. Oh, there's, there's many verses. I want to give you, just let me give you one. Psalm 148. Psalm 148. On a father is spiritual. You don't need to memorize these. I'll give you the outline for the sermon. I just want you to turn the pages of your Bible, tell the Lord you're sorry for not being a better father, and commit to being that father. Right. The details we can fill in. The heart we can't. The heart is settled right now as to how you listen to me. And they're not my words. Right. This is the Lord. All I am is his little ass. Right. I'm Balaam's ass to you. Balaam's, Balaam's ass spoke to Balaam. And all I'm doing is speaking on behalf of God from his word. <laughs> This is the Lord speaking. It's not me. He convicted me about being a father. And it's been building. You know last year I preached a series called Family Planning. We had a couple's retreat about the matter. I've tried to teach some of these things in the men's meetings. It's nothing new. But it's greater conviction. Because everywhere I look, and the dysfunction that I see in families, and the pain and trouble that I see in families, that I'm expected to try to help and put back together, I know where it can be traced. And it's not difficult. The buck stops here. Right. It stops with dad. If the mother isn't everything she should be, it's still the dad's fault. Right. Because he didn't help the mother be everything that she should be. Psalm 148. Look at how the Word of God is worded sometimes. Verse 11. Kings of the earth and all people. Princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and heaven. And notice who is to be praising the Lord for His excellent name and His great glory. 
Children. Where are they taught that? Since there isn't a Sunday school in the Bible, and we are told how they're taught it, it's fathers that do that in creating a spiritual home where the family loves to praise the Lord for His great and glorious name. A great father is holy. Turn in your Bibles to James 4, 4. James chapter 4. What did I mean by spiritual? By spiritual I meant our lives, our thinking, our conversation, our goals, our response to trouble, our, our, when we face needs, all of it is faith-based, trusting the Lord, and looking heavenward. That's what I meant by spiritual. Now, holy is a little different. Holy is the purity that, that a great father requires in his home and requires of his children. In this, in thoughts, and in actions. I want to use James 4.4. 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. People write our website and they tell us that we're extreme. It's because they've never heard the Bible nor read the Bible. Right. You want to talk about extreme? When God saw the wickedness getting too great in the earth and the thoughts of men's hearts was only evil continually, what did he do to them? Send them Benny Hinn in a white suit? Or did he send a flood that covered the highest mountains and drowned every single one of them except a family of eight? Now tell me who's extreme. Amen. All I do is yell at you lovingly. That's a whole lot better than a flood of water that suffocates you and your family to death. Right, right. And lets your corpses rot. That is the Lord, and He's extreme about holiness. He expects us to be living for Him. He hates sin. He despises sin. And He wants us to hate and despise it as well and to live holy lives. This verse tells us that when we are friendly toward the world and we get enamored with the world and we want to rub elbows with it and shoulders and we want to do the things of the world, we become the enemies of God. You can't do both. You can't be God's friend and the world's friend. Abraham was called the friend of God. Do you know what it took to be called the friend of God for Abraham? It took him leaving his home. It took him traveling hundreds of miles to get away from his family. It took him taking the less prosperous part of Canaan and leaving the more prosperous part to his nephew. But he was the friend of God. And I'll tell you a secret. This is a P.S. Because it's not my main point. Abraham ended up a whole lot richer than Lot. Lot Lot was at Abraham's door begging for the crumbs from his table when their two lives were over. Do you remember? He didn't have anything and he was in a cave with his two daughters pregnant by himself. That's a mess. That's dysfunction. You know what it all came from? Because Lot was a pitiful father. He wasn't holy. A holy father would have never pitched his tent down there in the valley approaching Sodom. That father would have never moved on into Sodom after he got comfortable living in the tent outside Sodom. That father wouldn't have let his daughters marry the men of Sodom. And so when that father called on his sons-in-law to get up and leave the city because God was going to burn it up, they laughed him to scorn because he was a hypocrite. He wasn't holy. And we need holy fathers. Right. Holy father. 
Thou only art holy. Help us to be holy as fathers. When we befriend the world and we allow our children to befriend the world, they become the enemies of God because he wants us sold out to him. This is the word of the Lord. It's not the word of Jonathan Crosby. The Bible says no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Can't love them both. The more you get enamored with the world and its things, the less you're going to enjoy the preaching of God's word, the singing of praises to his name, the reading of his Bible, and prayer. Do all of you know that? Have you all experimented with that a little bit in your lives? I've experimented with that a little bit in my life. I know. Because when you're living holy, prayer is, pre- prayer is pleasant and precious. And the word of God is a rich heritage. Amen. And the preaching of God's word in the assembly of the saints is the place you want to be. Right. But you can ruin that by not having a holy life. That's right. A good father is holy. That means he doesn't let the world into his house. And he doesn't send his kids out into the world. So a great father is holy. And he requires holiness of his children. And he doesn't let the world get them. And there are things that get our children. You know, we bring the world into our homes with television. That's the world's pulpit. That's the devil's pulpit. It never preaches a right thing on any channel at any time. Right. Because it is not faith-based. There is not a real faith-based channel in the entirety of television programming in the world. If you find me a Christian television channel, I will show you that it's not faith-based because it's not preaching the Word of God the way the Word of God is supposed to be preached. So we bring the world in. And every father needs to take notice to the degree that you allow your children to become friends with the world or the enemies of God. A good father had better be a teacher. Number four, a teacher. Look at Ephesians chapter 6 with me, please. Ephesians 6, and let's remember, Ephesians is in the New Testament. This is not the Old Testament, this is the New, and the same thing is being taught in the New as was taught in the Old. Right. A good father is a teacher. Now, can a teacher, can a teacher shuffle the duty off to the pastor? If the father is to be the teacher. If the father is to be the teacher, can he shuffle the duty off to the mother? No, he's not being a teacher. Is teaching something you can do by thinking about it? Can you think, I would love my children to be God-fearing, knowledgeable children in the Word of God? Does it happen by thinking about it? No. It's going to only happen by you teaching. And so here's what the Word of God says. You know, we're coming along through the book of Ephesians. We come to verse 4, and it says, And ye fathers. So everyone in here is a father. Here's a verse that was written just for you. Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You say, well, I don't know what those two words mean, so I haven't done this verse yet. Well, I'll help you. Nurture means the instruction, the training, the discipline, and the chastening to bring someone up and educate them. The education, training, discipline, or chastening of a child to bring them to a state of maturity and adulthood. You're to do that in the Lord. And admonition is to put a person in mind of their duties. It means to counsel against wrong practices. It means to give authoritative or warning advice of the Lord. 
Because notice it says, fathers, bring your children up. Bring them up to maturity in the nurture, the instruction, the training, the discipline, and the chastening of the Lord. And then it says, admonition of the Lord. Reminding them of their duties. Warning them of bad behavior. Authoritatively telling them of God's opinion on the things that they're doing in their lives. Of the Lord. So, from this one verse, and the Bible is concise. It's the most concise book ever written. Though you think it's pretty long. You ought to see the textbooks they use in school today. They're the ones that can't get sense out of a thousand pages. The Bible's concise. One verse. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. We'll be there in just a minute. And bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Bring them up, feeding them a supply for their ears from your mouth. The instruction of God's word, what's right, what's wrong, what God thinks on every subject that they face. That's how we're to raise children. In the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Not the nurture and admonition of the scope and sequence of the American educational system. Not the nurture and admonition of the, of the Boy Scouts of America. The nurture and admonition of the Lord. And what he's taught us in his Bible. That verse is totally a cross-reference with Psalm 78, 1 through 8. Where we're to teach our children and their children the law and the commandments of God. You know, Solomon and David were great teachers. Look at Psalm, Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 8. I've already mentioned Psalm 34, 11 to you. Where David said, come my children and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That's teaching. Verbal instruction. You want to be a pastor? Start with your kids. You get tired of having to listen to me? Then teach your children. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. My son. Oh, Proverbs is a tender book. Proverbs, I get to sit. I get to sit on a chair with King Solomon at his best. Right. Inspired by God. And he's telling me how to have a great life. It doesn't get any better than that. Right. Until you go to the next book of the Bible. (laughs) But it's a wonderful thing. You get this. King Solomon, richest man that ever lived, wisest man that ever lived. When he talks about women in the book of Proverbs, does he have a clue of what he's talking about? Yeah. He's inspired, and he tried a thousand of them. He had a thousand. The Bible tells us that. And so when he speaks, and God's inspiring him, it's a wonderful book. And notice how he addresses his son. And this is over and over in the book. Proverbs 1.8, My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother. See, there's one of two places in the book of Proverbs where Solomon had delegated some of the teaching even to his wife because a godly woman, when she's got her chance with the children, she's going to lay down the holy law of God with them as well. Right. And that's chapter 1, verse 8 and 620. For you women that want a couple verses for you, I just gave them to you. But notice my son, and throughout the book of Proverbs, my son, hear the instruction of your father. Bend down your ear. Humble yourself. Hear. Take heed. Retain my words and live. So he's a teacher. What does it take to teach? It takes opening your mouth. It takes getting the kids home. It means getting them sat down. It means getting away whatever's distracting them and saying, I want to teach you something tonight. 
And the Lord doesn't care what you've learned in your experience because your experience is absolutely worse than worthless. Because your experience is interpreted by your ignorance, which makes it worse than worthless. What God wants taught is his word. His word. You don't know anything about women compared to Solomon. So when we deal with women, we go right to the word of God and deal with women the way the Bible tells us to deal with them. And to teach our sons. Because it's right there, a man who did a whole lot more than you'll ever even imagine about doing. And he was inspired when he wrote his summary of it. The word of the Lord is what we're to teach. Because it's said to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Not our experiences. Oh, Lord, forgive us. The word of the Lord. A teacher. Much more could be said. What does it require? Their ears. Your mouth turning off the television, stopping their activities, setting them down, and taking that difficult step where you have to take a deep breath and say, family, I would like you to come in and sit down because I'd like to teach you something. And you think, if, if you're with me right now, some of you men, oh, that just sounds so arrogant. That sounds so proud. I think they'd all laugh at me. I don't know what they would do if I did that. That's why we're doing this together. Right. What are you going to do, wives, when your husband does that? You're going to cheerfully get the whole family in there and say, sit and open your mouth, you paragon of wisdom, and teach the family. I love you, you mighty man. Amen. And all you children, when your father does anything like that, salute. And get in there and sit down and sit up straight and look at him and listen. And can I give you one hint that hurts me? Don't yawn. Don't yawn. Please don't yawn. Pin it shut with a safety pin. Whatever it takes, just don't yawn. But children, you can help your dad. When he says, family, let's sit down. I want to read a chapter to you and teach you the fear of the Lord. Yes, sir, daddy. And sit down and be excited about it. and Listen. And participate. When he asks for questions, think of one. Even if it's crazy, participate. It's very hard to be a father. And all you young men, someday you'll know that it's hard to be a father. Okay, a father's got to be a teacher. We've got to hurry. A father needs to be tough. We don't need any work on that. father needs to be tough. What, is, what do I mean by tough? Well, if he's going to have a spiritual house, and he's going to have holy children, and he's going to teach them the fear of the Lord, then he needs to be tough. He needs to enforce it. And the Bible tells us how to enforce it. And it's not sending them to their room for five minutes. And it's not counting to ten. And it's not taking away their car privileges for a week. The Bible tells us how to enforce it. And the Bible deals with it thoroughly. And it's a shame that it's been neglected in our country. And we are reaping the results of it. Thank you, Ben Spock. Our great-grandparents didn't have a problem. You know, they had, they had learned to break colts. They had learned to train oxen. Right. And they figured that the same tools would work good on their kids. And you know what? They were right. Totally right. And you know, the Bible taught that a thousand years B.C. Right. Solomon said, a whip for the horse. A bridle for the ass and a rod for the fool's back. All in one verse. It's Proverbs 26.3. Very simple. 
loving, consistent discipline to enforce the law of God on your family. A good father is tough. I want to go to one that we need more work on. A good father is pitiful. Number six, a good father is pitiful. Can I turn you to Psalm 103 to see that God our Father is pitiful, and so we want to be pitiful like Him. And pitiful means full of pity, full of recognition of their abilities and not holding them accountable for more than they can give. Remembering that they are weak and foolish and treating them with the same kind of chastening that you want to be treated with by God. And I'll tell you something about my relationship with the Lord. He doesn't always come thundering and crashing down on me and smash me into oblivion. But he he knows how to get my attention. And he gets my attention in different ways at different times to different degrees. And we want to be wise with our children. Look at these verses and let them sink into your soul. Because rule number six this morning for your consideration is that a good father is pitiful. Psalm 103 and verse 13. Like as a father pitieth his children. Oh. David assumes that fathers pity their children. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Okay, so the Lord shows me an example here. The Lord himself said that good fathers pity their children just like he pities us. What does it mean to pity children? The next verse is going to tell us. Verse 14. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. That's how you pity a child. You remember, he's a child. He's a child. Like one verse we already read this morning, he doesn't know anything at all. And so that should be remembered. By not requiring out of him, but we require out of an adult. So there's pity. There's mercy. And we want to be that way because look at the verses that we now need to turn to, and that's Ephesians chapter 6 again. We've been there once already. Ephesians chapter 6. This is the word of the Lord. He said that he pities us, and all of you know that he pities us. He remembers our frame, that we're dust. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. I've given you the second half already. I need to give you the first half. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Now, when the Holy Spirit is going to deal with fathers in one verse, and he brings up two thoughts... I've got to believe that those two thoughts are going to be two of the most difficult things facing a father. Does that make sense to you? Those those two things. So the second one was to teach them the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Bring them up in the training, the discipline, the instruction of of the Lord. The first one, though, is not to provoke them to anger. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. If you'll turn over a few pages, we'll get... The version that we have in Colossians, chapter 3, and verse 21. Colossians 3, 21. Ephesians said, provoke them not to wrath. Colossians 3, 21 says, fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. How can we provoke our children? Too harsh. Insensitive. Too hard. Hypocritical. Blasting off out of control rather than being consistent. Name calling. A lack of affection for their feelings and their, their lives, 
their hopes, their dreams, when we have to come down on them and discipline them. We can provoke them to anger. We cause the anger. I didn't make this up. I haven't just all of a sudden got in touch with my feminine side. This is what the word of the Lord says. The two references that we have in the New Testament are about fathers provoking their children to wrath. Now see, most fathers today don't have a problem with these two verses because that was written 2,000 years ago when men were real men and fathers were real fathers and that meant if they were going to have a temptation, it was going to be to be too hard. In our society, they don't need this verse. They need to go back to the book of Proverbs and learn what it means to be a real father. But in this church, I want to speak to all the fathers about what I just said. You can provoke. You will be the cause of the discouragement of your children by being too hard, too harsh, too insensitive, too hypocritical, too exploding, rather than consistent, formal, structured discipline. And you'll be held accountable. And someday when that child that you've discouraged all their life is old enough, they're going to discourage you. Have it your way. You want to be Mr. Tough Guy? You don't know anything about the Lord. If he ever dealt with you that way, you'd incinerate on the spot. Right. Fathers need to be pitiful. We could go on and on. Number seven, a good father is consistent. A good father is consistent. I've already mentioned Lot. Look at Lot. He, got, he enjoyed pitching his tent towards Sodom. He enjoyed moving into Sodom. He ran for office. Anybody doubt me? He ran for office in the city of Sodom and sat in the city, the gate of the city with the elders of that city. He went and got himself a nice prosperous life in Sodom. That was inconsistent with a message that he sent to the doors of his sons-in-law when he said, up, get you out of this city. God's about to destroy it. They laughed at him because he was inconsistent. A good father is consistent. The children always know where he stands. There are two great blessings from being a consistent father. Your children find security and peace in your home because they know exactly where they stand. They know exactly what dad thinks. They know exactly what dad will do if a line is crossed. They feel safe and secure and comfortable because they have a dad that's consistent. A father that's consistent also trains by that great mechanism for training children, repetition. By being consistent, he trains by repetition that children will pick up. If a father's inconsistent, they don't know what's right or wrong. If a father's hypocritical, they don't know what's right or wrong. He's saying one thing, doing another thing. He tells them one day they can't do this, the next day they can do it, and they're confused, and they don't learn. A father needs to be consistent. You know, Peter's hypocrisy carried away believers in the churches of Galatia. We read in Galatians chapter 2 by being a hypocrite. Consistent fathers. Your conduct of your children needs to be free from rash, inconsistent, or contradictory actions. Let's go. Number eight, a father's knowledgeable. He knows his children, their needs. Their general needs as a child, their specific needs as your little snowflakes. Every one of your children is unique from the other children, and your little snowflakes are unique from other snowflakes. The same general rules apply, and they're dealt with in God's Word. But the little differences between children, do you know where God expects you 
to understand those differences by doing a little bit of work and by being knowledgeable of your children. The Bible says it is the glory of a king to search out a matter. And a good father searches out a matter and understands his different children, allows some greater liberties for their weaknesses that they may have, and requires more of others based on what they're able to do. A good father is knowledgeable. I'm thankful that my Father in heaven knows what I have need of before I even ask. Right. We're told that in Matthew chapter 6. Solomon knew the temptations of a young man, and so look at the book of Proverbs. He's always trying to stay one step ahead of his son. Nowhere in the book of Proverbs do I, do I hear, Dad, I got in trouble with a woman. The book of Proverbs is, Dad beaten son to the problem. Right. My son. Then we have chapter 5 about the strange woman. Chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 9, and other verses scattered throughout the book. Because the father is always there. The father was once a young man. You know, every one of you 16-year-old boys, you don't know anything. You're wet behind the ears. You're so dumb. I love every single one of you. I have to tell you that. You know, we just read a verse about you. You don't know anything at all. And I, I love every one of you. I don't care if you're 15 or 17. I love every one of you. But you need to recognize that your dad has already lived the next year of your life before you a long time ago and got to think about it for the last 30 years. Now, that's a lot more knowledge than you could even imagine. Now, fathers, with that kind of knowledge, you should be able to look ahead and see what kind of trouble your son's going to get into if they follow a certain course of behavior. And you've got the Word of God to help guide you as to what's important. That's why when you read through the book of Proverbs, there's so much emphasis on the problems of women. Because they're a great temptation for young men, it better be dealt with. Then there's financial problems. Then there's habits of laziness. Habits of diligence that we want to promote in the Word of God. A father is knowledgeable. Number nine, a father is kind and loving. Jesus assumes that evil fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. If you want the other eight to fall into the line for you, then a father needs to be loving and kind as our Father in heaven is loving and kind to us. A loving father doesn't dwell in the past. He wants to dwell in the present with his child. There was a failure in the past. Blow it off. Go on. Fathers shouldn't be historians. The Bible says, He that repeateth the matter separateth very friends. We don't need to go back in the past unless there's a very valuable lesson to be brought back for the present. Otherwise, live with them in the present and be loving and kind and merciful. Could you receive the prodigal son back? Like the father did in Luke 15? That was a great father, a very loving and kind father. A loving father communicates because a loving father talks to his children. No communication is punishment. There is no other explanation for it. You can't excuse yourself because you don't like to talk. It doesn't matter whether you like to talk. That, where does where's that in the Bible? If you don't like to talk, then don't talk. I've looked for it because I wanted to help some of you. Talk. A loving father communicates because children love to hear from their father and know where he stands and what he thinks. When we leave them without knowing what we think about something they want to do, we provoke them to wrath and to discouragement. A loving father seeks agreement 
in his family because he knows how can two walk together except they're agreed. And we could go on and on, and you're going to have to go on and on on your own. But a good father is a loving father, a tender father, a kind father, and is building an affectionate, close relationship with his children, not just the other points that I've made. Last of all, a father is prudent. He's always looking out for the future because a child can't see it. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. And the wealth of the sinner is laid up to the just. Proverbs 13:22. A good father is always looking ahead because a child can't. A child can't think past the next five minutes. They have the most short-term perspective. All they can think of is what will be fun for the next five minutes. And a father needs to leap out in the future five, ten, twenty, thirty years and build on that foundation for the time to come. I'm thankful that our Father in Heaven does that. Do you know what he looked ahead and saw for me? He looked ahead and saw for me that one day I was going to stand at the bar of judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ and be found wanting. And so he paid a price for my future provision that I would have an abundant entrance into an everlasting glory. That is a prudent father. I don't care what you take from what I've said today, and I've only said a little bit. Our Father in Heaven is better than we can even imagine. And everything he's done. Has my father taught me? Look at the letter he wrote me. Has your father ever written you a letter? He hasn't written you a letter like this letter. He wrote me this letter. I just wish I could understand every chapter of it. But where he's given me understanding, it is the most fantastic letter a father's ever written. He's our father in heaven. And tonight we're going to celebrate... His prudence. You say, you're abusing words in the Bible. Do you really think so? Is our Heavenly Father prudent when we come to the Lord's Supper? Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Amen. In providing the Lord Jesus Christ for our redemption. Wives and children, you've heard me today telling your husbands and fathers what they ought to be. Will you help them? Will all of you wives and children jump in and help your father be the great father the Lord wants him to be and that he wants him to be? God has chosen us for the perilous times of the last days. Right. I didn't. I get excited, though, when I think about it. Amen. God has chosen us for the perilous times of the last days that I started with from 2 Timothy 3. God has called us. He believes that we are worthy of being able to stand in an evil day against the enemy of what he calls very dangerous times. That ought to provoke all of us. There's a lot more material available. There's a notebook for every married man here this morning. Please pick it up for my wife. If you didn't have a good father, I'm sorry. You need to listen more than anyone else in here so that you can hear the word of the Lord because you have no recollection of a man even close to what's here. So you need to listen more closely. That doesn't doesn't have to affect you. So what what your father did? What are you going to do with your children? Lord, help us. Be great fathers.